Well, this day we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And I've done this a number of times. I just felt that we ought to spend some time talking about what this means. Uh, this is very much, I believe, in most Christ- many Christians today, is just taken for granted. It's something we do as a ritual in some cases. Some of you, or many of you, were raised in a tradition where this was the center of the service, but it was kind of a ritual. And, and we want to take some time and look at the Word of God today because it is a covenant meal. The Lord's given us this meal to share together. There are only a few things, few sacraments, there are a few things that He gave us and told us to do and to other than relating the way we relate to one another. And the Lord's table is one of them. Baptism is another. We'll talk about that down the road. But I want to take the time and look at this from a particular point of view because this is a very powerful thing. It's, it's something that we often take for granted, and the Lord had to deal with me about this a number of years ago, <clears throat> because what was happening, I'm a teacher, I love to teach, I'll go all day, and some of you realize that, and I uh, think it feels like you do already, um, and what was happening is on a communion Sunday, I would finally come to the end, oh my goodness, I haven't left much time, let's squeeze it in, as it were some obligation, and the Lord began to deal with me about that 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 was the wrong attitude. So what we did for a while is we did not do it on the first, we used to do it on the first Sunday of a month, and that was becoming kind of a ritual. So I just stopped it for a while and just began to do it whenever I felt impressed to do it, and I would devote the Sunday to it. And then several years ago, we went back basically to that, the normal pattern that we do. But I want to take the time this morning to dispense because it is a very important thing that God has given us to do. So to do this, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as many as times as I've taught on this, I saw some things this time I hadn't seen before. That's one of the things I love about the Word of God. It's just so alive. So we're going to start in verse 17. <clears throat> we may not go down through all of this, but we're going to go through at least a certain portion of this because there's a certain aspect of this that I want to talk about today. Verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I don't praise you. That's not a good start. So Paul is correcting them. Now, I just realized a while ago, actually a couple of years ago, that we're living in a time when, especially the church in this country, we love to hear good things. We love to be blessed. We love to hear God wants to prosper us. God wants to heal us. God loves us. All these wonderful things. And we want to come and hear that. But if I read the Bible, Paul didn't did that, but he also corrected them. He got into their lives. He got into their marriages, he got into their their eating habits, he got into all kinds of things in their lives and corrected them. We don't hear a lot of that today, but because he loved them, he corrected them, and Hebrews 12 says, because God loves us, he corrects us. So he's giving them instructions not to praise them, and this is what I want to begin to talk about. Since when you come together, he's talking about coming to church, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. So it's not just coming to church, it's how we come to church. Because we can come to church for the worse and not the better. But for the worse, verse 18. First of all, oh boy, there's going to be more than one of these. When you come together as a church, notice he's talking about come together as a church. We did a series, uh, we just finished a series on are you going to have the church or be the church? In the end of it, we talked about two visions that God gave to Ezekiel. The first was a valley of dry bones. And we talked about that representing the church in this age, which is often a series of a, 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 a valley of dry bones. And dry bones means a bunch of individuals that come to church that aren't connected together where they're supposed to be connected together and have no muscle, no sinew, no life in them. But they're there. They're in the valley. They're here in church. So, first of all, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. The, the more common term for that is a clique. People that have their favorite people at church, so they, I'll turn around, look, they sit with them. <laughs> when there's a church function, they're the ones they want to go sit with, they don't want to have anything to do with the other people. Or even worse, they sit over here because they're mad at people that are over here and they come hoping that this person that I'm thinking about comes to the second service, not to the first service, because I don't want to run into them. That's the visions. If you look back in chapter 1, you see how bad it was. I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So they're, they're, the, the, the body was separated. And one of the things we're going to talk about is the power of this meal, the power of the communion table, the power of the Lord's table. And Satan is absolutely scared and threatened by the potential power of the church. If you and I, if you and I really could see the, the power, that it, the potential of power that is in this room right now, 
The devil sees it. His knees are shaking and wants to make sure we don't see it. Power is in our union. Power is in our coming together. And therefore, the major weapons that are used to defeat the power is separation, division. Strife is a measure of division. It's looking it down at other people and saying, well, I'm better than they are, or I've judged this person, or I'm mad at this person. Those are literally, it's as if somebody took your body and cut it up into pieces because we are the body of Christ. Verse 19. For there must also be factions, that's also cliques, among you, that those who are proved may be recognized among you. Verse 20. Therefore, because of this, because there are divisions in your church, because there's separation, because you're really not unified, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. We can drink the cup today and we can eat the little piece of bread and not have had the Lord's Supper. And in which case you've had a little piece of bread and you've had a little bit of grape juice. But it's not the Lord's Supper. Because to be the Lord's Supper, it has to be the way He ordained it. So He says, when you come together with, with, out of disunity, when you come together un, uh, unaware or unconcerned about the others in this body, and you eat the bread and drink the cup, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not His Supper. Verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry, imagine this, and another is drunk. What was going on in this church is they would come together and they considered it like a potluck dinner. So some people who could cook well had this big spread and they ate over here. And then you other people that didn't have anything, they were struggling or if they had something, nobody wanted to eat it. And they ate over here and they didn't care about each other. That's what was going on. So it's not like they all came together for supper. He said, it's as if you're coming here for supper. It's as if you're coming here for the meal you're going to get out of it and not understanding who you are. So one's hungry and the other's drunk. This is church. All right, verse 22. What? (laughs) That's to wake them up. Don't you have houses to eat in and drink in? In other words, when you come to church, it's not like you do it at home. It's not, your, it's not the same purpose for which you have a meal at home. Or, you, or do you despise the church of God? Do you realize it's possible the way we have an attitude towards this to be despising the church of God? Now the church of man, no, but the church of God. We can be coming to church every Sunday. We can be can, worshiping with our ties. Our heart, what tears can be flowing down our cheeks as we worship and sing songs unto God. We can hug our favorite people, but we can be despising the church of God. It's not the church, it's the church of God. It's not supper, it's the Lord's supper. And shame those who have nothing. So the way we treat each other, the way we treat each other is a reflection of whether we're really the church of God or not. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Verse 23. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Let's stop there a second. This is what really struck me. Paul's understanding of communion was not because he talked to John and Peter and Paul, John and Peter and Andrew and those that were there in the upper room when Jesus instituted it. He got this directly from the Lord. So what he's about to teach them what he's about to explain to them, Jesus taught him directly. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the night, same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And this is the meat of what we wanted to get down to. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you, Do this in remembrance in me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Now stop there a second. There is far more power and meaning in this meal than we have realized and walked in. There are many people, I've got books on this, who have been healed sharing the Lord's Supper together. Healed, physically healed. An internationally known preacher that was diagnosed with the same kind of cancer that I was diagnosed with last year. Just in his own private study, shared, took the Lord's Supper at the end of every day. By the time he went back for his MRI, they couldn't find anything. Because the, he took it every day and began to realize, this is a man that preaches all over the world. It began to get through to him the power of this covenant meal. And when it got through to him, the effects of that power drove that cancer out of his body. I've got other books that talk about how people have been healed, miraculously healed, delivered of spirits by simply taking this meal together. So it's not the bread and it's not the cup. It's what the meal represents. But it's the reality of what that meal represents. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The real significance. Paul's warning them also here that just as this meal, the power of this meal can deliver, can heal, can transform things, the power of this meal can also kill. Because he goes on, we're not going to read them, he goes on the verses that follow this. He says, because many of you have not received this with the right heart and spirit, many of you are sick and weak, and some have even died by not respecting what this meal is. It's not that God made them sick, it's a disrespect, it's, a re- it's in some ways a rejection of what this meal represents. So we're going to go back and look at what one of the things that this meal represents. So let's go to verse 23 again. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now I'm going to venture for a few minutes where angels fear to tread. Because <laughs> I've been known to do that. Many of you have been ro- raised in church where they had a tradition and a teaching that literally what happens is that bread is literally becomes his body. It's called stra- transubstantiation. And that the, that the wine or juice or whatever it is literally becomes his, his blood. Part of the Great Reformation, which is about 500 years ago, was over this issue. And, and, the, and the Protestant church was formed to some degree out of a dis- disagreement that this has not actually become the body of Christ or actually physically turned in to His blood. And so they, they said, that, no, what this represents is this is symbolic of that. And, and I, my personal belief is that's true. It is symbolic. But what we've done in this day and age is we've gone to the other extreme. And, and we, what we've said is, well, because it's not really his body, it's not really his blood, so we're going to just, it's just kind of common. It's just grape juice, and it's just a little, in this church, it's this little chiclet of, of stale bread, okay? And so what we've done as a reaction to that, we've walked away from it completely, and we've lost the power of it. We've lost the reverence for it. I had someone here to ask me, you know, wh- where do you believe in this? I said, honestly, I don't know the answer. My personal belief is it's not physically become his body, but, the, but, we, but what Paul's saying is we should at least treat it as if it is. And we become casual and common with it. But I really believe what he's talking about this. Let's go to verse 25. In the same manner, the same way, with the same attitude, with the same purpose, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Say new. new. Say new covenant. new covenant. 
So he's symbolizing here, not just symbolizing, he is declaring and decreeing that through what he's about to do, he is going to institute a new covenant. So this is a covenant meal that he is sharing with them. This do as often as you drink it. Notice he doesn't tell you how often to do it. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now the word remember is a very pregnant word. That means it's got all kinds of depths of meaning to it. Because it can mean anything from... What was that I going to get at the store? Oh. oh yeah, I remember. Come and bringing back to your front of your... Bringing it from the resources in the back. up. Oh yeah, I, I remember what it is to a, a celebration. This year, Anita and I celebrated our 50th anniversary of our covenant together. So we did things to help us to not just remember, but we looked at pictures. In fact, the, the staff showed pictures up here of when we were first, when we were, the day we were married. And what it did, it bring back, not just a recollection, it brought back the experience of it again and helped us to renew that commitment to one another again. I don't want to go back 50 years and be who I was back then. I'd like to look like that maybe a little bit. <laughs> But I don't want to go back to, to where I was then. I didn't know anything. I was dangerous to get married. I don't want, but, but I want to remember what it was like and the commitment that we made to one another. And that's why on an anniversary, it's good to pull out your wedding album. That was the advice that a pastor that married us. He said, look it over. And as you do that, you know, remember the commitment that you've made to us. Now, the depth of what that commitment means is far deeper today than it was 50 years ago. I had no clue what I was doing. But I remember the day I br we brought back memories of it. That's more what this word means. To remember, it's a covenant term. It's a covenant term. I did a course I used to teach on the blood covenant. I've done a version of it in here when we had the school of ministry. So I'm going to give you a part of it. The clock's out and that's dangerous. Because <laughs> I won't know when to stop if that clock's on or not. Okay. So we're going to talk this morning a little bit about what is a covenant because we live in a culture that doesn't know much about covenants. That's our, in the Far East, they still have some sense of covenants and blood covenants. And the only thing, the closest thing we have in our culture to a real blood covenant is marriage, what God intends by marriage. Marriage is not a contract. Contracts can be broken. Covenants can't without consequences. So let's talk about what a covenant is a little bit. Because notice he says, this bread is my body given for you. This cup is the, my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And that's what I want to focus on today. So let's talk about what a covenant is. I used to, the course I used to teach, I, I entitled it, A Lawyer's View of a Covenant. Because a lawyer has an understanding of covenant because I used to write covenants. In contracts I would put covenants. In, in, in a covenant is much more than a promise. Often this is taught as it's an exchange of promises. It's much more than that. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have a mortgage? If we buy a house and you don't have the cash to buy the house, which most people don't, you've got to borrow the money from somebody, and usually it's a bank that's in the business of lending money. So when you sit down at a closing table, they have you sign two trees worth of documents. When I started in law, it was three documents. And the most important one you signed was a promissory note. Promissory note is when you promise to pay back the bank the $150,000 that you borrowed them. And they want interest, so it spells out what that interest is, it spells out when the payments are due, and it spells out when the whole thing is due. And some of you signed mortgages that, you know, you, you, you have to pay a little bit now, but then some day's coming when they knock on your door, says, now the rest of it's due, it's called a balloon payment. And so the promissory note is basically saying, I owe you the money. But you know, they must, might love you. They might think the world of you. But they realize you could change your mind and say, I, I don't want to pay it back. Or you could just not have the ability to pay it back. So in order to make them feel safer and more secure, they ask you to give them something as security for that. They want a mortgage on that house. And in Massachusetts, you literally are deeding the house to the mortgage subject to you getting it back if you satisfy your obligations. Never know what you're going to get in here, do you? So literally, as a, as a surety, as a guarantee that you're going to fulfill the promise you made to them, you give them something 
as that security. So now they're much safer in handing you or the closing attorney the check for $150,000 because they know they got your house in case you don't pay it back. It gives them security. And in that mortgage, you make a series of covenant promises by which you give them certain rights in that property. And that's what a covenant is. A covenant is not just an exchange of promises. It's where you give something of value to you along with the promise as security that you're going to perform it. A partnership is a form of covenant where you make certain pledges. One partner may pledge uh, 50, you know, their money and the other may pledge their, their, their talent together to accomplish a common goal. But, but, but uh, and the different types of covenant depend on what it is you give as a pledge. So a mortgage is a pledge of, of the property that you, borrow, that you bought back to the bank. A blood covenant is the highest kind of covenant because the blood is saying what is pledged as the security is your life. And under the covenants we're going to talk about for a short period of time, under those covenants, if you were to break that covenant, you forfeit your life. So you think twice before making the promise. By the way, marriage is a blood covenant. It is a giving of not just I do on that day 50 years ago, it's a giving of my life to her ahead of time. And we weren't saved, but my parents had been divorced and I didn't want to pick my family through a divorce. So we made that commitment to one another even without knowing the Lord and there have been times that's what's held us together. And you make the commitment up front you don't make the commitment when tough get, things get tough because that's not the time to make the commitment because now it feels like you don't want, I want out of this, but I've already made that commitment. And in a blood covenant, I have literally pledged to die if I break that covenant. Now, if more people had that view going into marriage, we wouldn't have any of the, many of the divorces that we have because nowadays people look at it as an exchange of promises. Well, I can break my promise because I'll go find somebody else. No, you won't. You'll take whatever you had in that marriage with you. I don't want to get off on that because we can get off in a different direction. So a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties or, or groups by which they give themselves to each other in union together. And what that involves is when I enter into a covenant with somebody, I'm not only giving myself, I'm giving all my assets and all my liabilities. When we got married, I got all her assets, I got all her liabilities, she got all my assets, all my liabilities. Oh, I don't, do I dare venture here, Lord? I will. <laughs> That's why I personally have an issue if in a marriage the husband and wife each have their own bank account. Not looking at anybody. <laughs> because it's our money. It's the Lord's money, but it's ours together. Whether I'm the one that's earning it or we earn it together, it's our money because to separate something out is in essence say this covenant is not a whole commitment of, one another, of us to one another. That doesn't mean you both have to manage it. But anything that begins to separate, say, well, this is mine. In fact, the Bible says about marriage that my body's not mine. My body's hers, and her body's mine. I don't have ownership of this. Now that, you're third in line, because the Lord's first. Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, and after that, if you're married, it's your spouse's, and you're third in line. Oh, I could really meddle if I get in that, but I won't. <laughs> so it's a solemn pledge bound by a security of, of, of literally the giving of your life. And that's what the guarantee is. It's the most solemn because it's the giving, it's blood. The Bible says in Leviticus, I think it's 17, that the life is in the blood. And so the shedding of the blood, the giving of blood, is literally, in, in, the old, in some of the old societies and old cultures, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. So I want to talk for a minute about how, so what would happen in, 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 in thousands of years ago is people, why would they enter into this? 
Well, they would enter into this because there's some, something they're going to get back out of it that has a value to them that's important. So it, let's, there are many examples we could use. Let's say that there's, there's two tribes. And, and one of them, one of them, one I used to use, in, in, in this is just my, I make this up, in, in class was you had the tribe over here of pygmies, little, little short people, okay? But they were great farmers. They knew how to raise crops. I mean, they had a green thumb. They could raise anything. And then you had the Maasai warriors, seven-foot people, okay? They, they, don't know how to, they don't know how to farm, but they're mighty warriors, okay? And they've been fighting with each other for years, and wait, they don't want to wait. Wait a minute. This isn't working too well. Maybe we ought to come together because there's a lot of common enemies out there, and let's come together and let's make a covenant to one another. And they would do this. Livingston, Dr. Livingston, who went through, I think it was Livingston, was he the one that went through, and Stanley was the one that found him? I get him mixed up. Uh, was a missionary, went through all of Af- a lot of Africa, and eventually the, in England they sent a reporter to find him. Uh, and, and I've got segments of a book where he wrote accounts of covenants he entered into with different peoples in different tribes in Africa as he was traveling. And, and, and so, let's take the, the, the Maasai, the, their seven-foot warriors and the little pygmies, decide to enter into this covenant. Why would they do that? Well, from the pygmies, it's kind of obvious. Because now I've got brothers who are seven-feet warriors and the most feared warriors around. And why would the, why would the, why would the Maasai do it? Because we want to eat well, and they've, they, they've, got the, they've got the steaks and the, they've got the food and the water. So they would enter into this covenant together. And the essence of covenant, and this is so important to understand, the essence of covenant is two individuals now become one. And that one is a separate entity from the two individuals. So these two tribes would come together, so they would now have a common identity together. They would no longer be just the pygmies, and no longer be just the, 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 the Maasai. They would now be one tribe together. They may live separately, but they're one tribe. So the essence of blood covenant is two now become one. That's why all the assets and liabilities are now joined together. It's a giving of all that they have and all that they are forever. And it's a pledge of whatever it is you need, I have already committed to give it to you. Our children come home from wherever they live, especially the ones that live far away. We pick them up at the airport, get them home. They immediately go to the refrigerator. They don't ask. They just assume whatever's in there is still theirs because they're part of the family. Okay. I could really meddle here, but I'm not. They've got to move on. So how did they enter into it? This is where it's important. They didn't just get up one day and say, you know what? Let's enter into a covenant together. All right, let's shake hands. Great. All right, now we got a covenant. Because you need, we need something, something so that we can remember the commitment that we made. Something that brings back to our senses a memory of the commitment that we made. When we got married 50 years ago, I'm still wearing a tangible evidence of the commitment I made to her. Because this is the ring she gave me, and she still wears the ring that I gave her. So they would go through a ceremony, and, and different people did different aspects of this. I'm going to go through a few of these, and there were other variations of this, but they all had the same purpose in mind. So the first thing that they would do is that they would come together and they would exchange their promises. What is it we're promising? And they would often have a representative from each group, each tribe, each family would come together and they would make the promises. They would state or write down what the promises they were making to each other. So we will provide food for you as long as you need food. Whatever food we have, we will provide for you. Whatever water you need... And the Maasai are saying, yes, little brother, whatever, anybody comes against you, they come against me. That's important. Anybody comes against you, it's as if they've come against me. Then they would often exchange something that had to do with their identity. 
They would exchange coats. That would have been interesting between the pygmies and the Maasai, but they would exchange something. They would exchange something that they wear because what we wear tends to be a reflection of our personality. It also, it also is a communication of, of what we think of ourselves. That's why you ladies spend so much time getting ready to come. Why? Because when people see you, they're going to see you as something expressing who you are. So their cloak or their coat or their, their, their headband, their head thing that they wore was an expression of them. So they would take off a part of their identity and they would exchange it with each other. If they carried a sword or a shield, they would exchange those with each other, saying by that, now my sword is in your hands and my shield is in your hands. So these were tangible things that they would exchange. They would often exchange part of their name because your name is your identity. Part of their name. Then they would very often, and Wednesday night, uh, Rob Grinley, by the way, if you weren't here, get that message because it confirmed what God's been speaking to us. Very often what they would do is they would take animals and they would literally cut them down the middle and they would lay the, the halves open on each side like this. And, and they would have several animals often and of course it's filled with blood. The smell of blood is there. I don't want to offend anybody but this blood, the smell of blood was in their senses. Blood has a particular smell to it and taste to it. Of course they did, and the smell of blood was all over the place. Blood was splattered all over the place. And then the two representatives entering into this covenant, whether it was both chiefs or something, they would lock arms and they would walk in a figure-eight pattern around and through these halves like this. And what did that represent? Well, the, the, the figure-eight represented an eternity. This is a commitment we've made forever. It's unbreakable. By splitting the animals in half and walking down the middle of them, they were representing that we are now one. And if the fact that it was, a, it was a, a, a path of blood, in fact, sometimes it was referred to as the way. The way of blood. Some of you are ahead of me already. You can see the symbolism in this. So you walk through this, or you see your, 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 your father or your chief or somebody walk through this with blood all over. It's getting in your senses. Something significant has happened here. This is not just, you know, I do, we do, you do, let's go get something to eat. This is a lifelong commitment of everything. And then at the end, they would recite, they made the promises at the beginning, at the end they would recite the blessings and the cursings. If we keep this covenant, if you keep this covenant, we will protect you, whoever comes against you. And we will lay our lives down to protect you. And then the other side would say, and the blessings and curses are, we will give everything we have. If you're hungry, it's your food. And here's the curse. If you break this, our people, you, what would actually happen is if somebody broke the covenant, someone from their own family or tribe would hunt them down and execute them. So there were blessings and curses. We don't have the time this morning to go back and go through the examples in the Old Testament of these. I'm going to talk in a minute about one of them, the most important one. And then, and this is what we're leading up to, now that that's all over, they'd have the reception. <laughs> they would share a covenant meal together. And the purpose of the covenant meal was to, to celebrate this union that they had just entered into and they would share this meal together. This meal did not enter in, is not part of entering into the communion, into the union. It was a celebration of it. Oh, part of the entering into it was, this is an important part, is they would cut themselves somewhere. Either on the forehead there would be the shedding of blood. On the hand, on the chest somewhere, there would be a cutting of blood. The blood was again a, a giving of my life but the scar that was left was a mark selling anybody that you run into that you're in covenant with somebody. So if you're a little pygmy and you're walking down the trail 
and these guys jump out at you, and you say, halt. They're going to notice that there's a mark on your hand. That mark means, whoa, wait a minute, we're not just dealing with Shorty here. <clears throat> there's somebody who's pledged to hunt us down if we harm a hair of Shorty's head. We better find out who it is. And when they find out it's the Maasai, we're not messing with Shorty. So a mark of the covenant identified that you belong to someone. In the Old Testament, God entered into a blood covenant with Abraham. Excuse me. And I don't have time to go through, but at Genesis 12 is where he announced the covenant. Genesis 15 is where he entered into part of the covenant. And Genesis 17 is where he finishes it. And in yet you'll find, and we don't have time to go into it all there, that God, God walked arm in arm through two animals that were split. Not with Abraham, he had to put Abraham asleep. But he walked symbolically with Christ through that, through that pathway of blood. We saw that, that, that he made a covenant promises to Abraham. Whoever comes against you comes against me. Whoever blesses you blesses me. That's Genesis 12. We see that he exchanged names with Abraham. He exchanged names? Yes, because Abram's name, Abraham's name used to be Abram, A-B-R-A-M. And God changed his name to Abraham. I don't have time to put it up here, but he took his name Abram, split it apart, and put Yah in the middle. And Yah is God's name. Not only that, up until that time, he is known as Jehovah, he is known as Elohim. He's, but after that time, he refers to himself as the God of Abraham. So God's now added to his name, Abraham's name. Because he's saying, I'm the God that belongs to Abraham. And then he gave him the act of circumcision. The act of circumcision was a mark of the covenant to mark Abraham and every male that followed him that they were in covenant with God. That's why David, when he saw Goliath, looks at him and all his, all his soldiers and brothers are hiding and David looks at him and says, what, what, Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. David understood that they were in covenant with the living God and Goliath and the Philistines weren't coming against the Israelites. They were coming against the one they were in covenant with. And by David's confidence and faith in that covenant, this little teenager defeated this huge giant in the sight of all the other unbelievers. Covenant. Blood covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, we're not going to turn there. Jesus came, in essence, to replace the Abraham covenant, actually to fulfill it to fulfill the Abraham covenant by entering into the fulfillment of it. The covenant that God made with Abraham thousands of years earlier was kind of like the, the, the hors d'oeuvre. It, it, it was the foretelling of what he was going to do when God took on flesh and walked among us. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to enter into a covenant with man. A blood covenant. Now one of the things that they would do in this covenant is because you, couldn't, you can't have you know, hundreds or thousands of people cutting themselves and going through this whole ritual. So each group would select what's known as a covenant head, a representative, who would go through the ceremony on behalf of their own family, their own tribe, their own people. But it was just as if Every member of that family and every member of that tribe had their hands cut, spilled their blood, walked in a figure-eight fashion, ate whatever it was, the rituals, exchanged their, their coats. Because that covenant head represented their whole race, their whole generation, their whole people. Okay. Hebrews 8, verse 6 says, Jesus is the mediator 
the go-between, the covenant head of a better covenant on better promises. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Everybody with me so far? All right. I'm condensing about six weeks worth of blood covenant course. Verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. See, when God instituted the law, He declared blessings and curses. They're in Deuteronomy 28 and other places. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Why did he do that? That the blessing of Abraham, the blessing that God gave to Abraham when he entered into the covenant, might be the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we may receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak not, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant, yet if it's confirmed, no one annuls it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. When God entered into a covenant with Abraham, He entered it to Abraham and his seed. Look at this. This is very important. He does not say seeds, which is plural. So He didn't, because He took him out back then in in Genesis uh, 15. He takes him out and Abraham's trying to compute this and he says, how can all this be? And he says, look at the stars, the sky. Wow. Because by that time, Abraham doesn't even have a child. His wife's barren. He's too old. And God's talking about multitudes of nations coming from him. And he gets lost in the number of the stars. And he said, so shall your descendants be. But now he's saying, wait a minute. The promise was to Abraham and not to everyone that came through Abraham. The promise was to Abraham and to one who would come through Abraham. He says, not seeds uh, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So although God entered a covenant with Abraham, it was a form of the covenant, because Abraham could not be our covenant representative. Why? Because he's not a sinful, sinless life. Verse 17. And this I say that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God. The covenant that was confirmed by God. The covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Verse 18. For if the inheritance of the law is no longer promised but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What's this saying? That when God entered into a covenant with Abraham it was... It was, a, it was all he could do at that point. But it was pointing toward the day when God would come in the flesh, take on flesh and dwell among us, so that at the appointed time, God could enter into a covenant. God became a man so that a man could enter into a covenant, a blood covenant with God. And when we come to Christ... The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. When you come to Christ, you are joined to your covenant head who cut the covenant for you. So the strength of this covenant does not rest on your faithfulness. The strength of this covenant rests on the faithfulness of your covenant head who is Christ. So it's our faith in Christ that's what's required, not our faithfulness to Him that's the basis of our standing before God. Everybody understand that so far? Which is why the old law couldn't work because it was based on what I did. This is based on what Jesus did. So the only way this covenant can fail is if Jesus fails. And He can't fail. This is the covenant meal that he was telling them to do in remembrance of this covenant he was entering for them. But there's another side of this. Let me finish my notes here. 
Oh yeah, this is good. So he bore the curse for our disobedience. I'll explain this in a minute. He was obligated. Oh, no, I'll explain it now. God enters into a covenant with Abraham, a blood covenant. Basically saying, whatever you need, listen carefully, whatever you need, I have pledged who I am to meet that need. What was Abraham's greatest need? Because Abraham, as wonderful he was, wasn't perfect. Abraham sinned. And what was the greatest need Abraham had? He needed some, either he had to die for his sins or someone else had to die for his sins. And since God had made a blood covenant promise to him, when it came time, God had to send somebody in his place to die for Abraham to fulfill the blood covenant that God had made to him. So God was obligated to send Jesus to the cross. By the terms of the covenant he made with Abraham. And on that cross, Jesus cut a covenant for you by literally having his body cut and by literally shedding his blood, his life. This is why we sing about the blood. This is why we worship the blood because the blood is his life shed for us. And that blood paid your debt and my debt. Every morning, almost every morning, before I leave, we share communion together. We don't take a long time to do it, but we share communion together. And one of the things as, as doing that every day, the, the meaning of this has begun to grow to me, even though I've studied and taught it for years. And a while ago, I started realizing when we take the cup, I said, this cup is your bl blood of a new covenant. And then it dawned on me, it's this blood that defeated Satan. Because Satan's only claim over me, Satan's only avenue into my life is through my sin and my debt. And the blood paid the debt. Therefore, the blood stripped Satan of his authority in my life and in your life. And so I put it this way. Satan cannot cross the bloodline. Because for him to cross the bloodline, that blood's already defeated him. That blood is a hedge around us because the blood was shed to, to redeem your life and my life because His only hold was our sin. But when that blood was shed and you appropriated that blood, that paid your debt. You have no debt that Satan can come and claim. That's good, huh? Well, there's another side to it. A blood covenant is two ways. And this is the part we don't hear a lot of. Because just as the wonderful warriors pledged their support, their defense, and their everything they had to that little tribe of pygmies, the pygmies pledged everything they had back to the Maasai. So when you come to Christ... You pledged all of yourself to Him. This is the part we don't like to think about, but this is where the power is. This is how you receive the fullness of it, is by giving yourself fully to it. If you want more out of your marriage, give more into it. Fulfill the commitment you made, which was to give all of yourself. Now, that doesn't mean be abused or things like that. I'm talking about in a normal setting. We have covenant responsibilities. Just as He has given all that He is and all that He has to us to take on our liabilities, He took our sin. Because he gave himself for all your liabilities by covenant. He was obligated to take your liabilities on him. But in return, 
whether we realize it or not, we have pledged to take all of God's liabilities and all of His burdens on us. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. I understand I got lots of debts. I'm glad He's got them, not me. That's why God says, cast your cares on me. Cast your cares. I'm your covenant partner. Cast them on me. I want to carry them for you. But God has burdens. God has liabilities. God has liabilities. Yes, every lost soul is a burden to Him. We've committed to take on us all that He is and all that He wants to do. But that's where the power enters in. So many of us are trying to walk in this covenant on the blessing side. On this is what I get out of it, not recognizing I have a responsibility side which is to give all of myself to Him. And, and the wonderful thing is the Holy Spirit's been put in you to help you to do it. We have covenant responsibilities. All that we have are His... People balk at the... Well, Pastor, I, the tithe, I don't see the tithe in the New Testament. That's right. In the New Testament, it's all His. I think I'll go back to the tithe. <laughs> it's all His. I don't own anything. I don't even own my body. I'm a steward of His for Him. We must give to Him all that we have and all that we are and take on His liabilities. It's in our response, listen carefully, it's in our response to what He's given by giving back that we receive the fullness of what He's given to us. And this is what I was going to tell you earlier. Abraham, and I don't have time to go through the whole story. We've done it many times before. Abraham, later on in his life, now he has the child of the promise, Isaac. Isaac's grown up to be probably a, either an old teenager or a young man. He, God made him believe God for that child. And now in Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham and says, Abram, Abram, I want you to take your only son, the one that you love, and I want you to sacrifice him to me on the place that I'll show you. To show you Abraham's commitment to God, he gets up early the next morning and goes on that three-day journey to that mountain that God had chosen and takes his son. And I've got to shorten it down. He takes him up on top of that mountain and he's prepared to drive that knife down into that boy's hand, chest. Puts the wood around it, binds his son up, lays his son down. Has the knife up there. I mean, talking about Abraham's faith, his son's faith in his father was amazing. His son has asked him on the way up, Father, you know, I've taken inventory here. We've, we've done sacrifice before. I see the wood, I see the fire, but I don't see the animal. And Abraham's covenant answer Abraham's covenant answer is God will provide himself a ram for the offering. God will provide himself a ram for the offering. And as Abraham raises his knife, the Bible says in Hebrews, if you're just thinking, says, you know, Abraham's faith was such that he believed that even if he had chilled that child, God would raise him back from the dead. And as he's about to bring the knife down, an angel speaks to him and says, Stop! God speaks and says, Now I know that you fear me, that you reverence me, that you love me. Now I know it. And he, then God now recites again the blessings of the covenant. What's happened now? In the beginning, there was the exchange of the promises. There was, this, there was the commitment was made. But now... Years later, God is calling him in a test of his commitment. And he says, now I know that you are completely and fully committed to me. Abraham, by the way, didn't get there overnight. We all make commitments and we don't know what it all means. We both did it 50 years ago. We had no idea what was in store. So now my understanding of this commitment is far deeper, has far greater meaning now than it did 50 years ago standing at that altar. But it's the same commitment. God says, now I know. Now I know that you reverence me. Now I know that you've given your... See, now 
the acting out of that covenant on both sides made it real. Made it real. In John chapter 14, I want to turn there quickly because we've been studying these verses. And there's a verse we didn't get into because I was waiting for now. John 14. Verse 10. These are the verses we were teaching on back a few weeks ago. Do, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? That's union. Covenant relationship. The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. We talked about that. Believe me, look at this union. I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Otherwise, believe me for the sakes of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he that believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also in greater works than you do, because I go to the Father. In other words, whatever you ask, and he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. I'm asking, is that in the Bible? Three of you think it is. Does he mean that? That's a covenant promise. Whatever you need, I have already committed. Whatever you need, whatever you ask me in my name, in that covenant, I've already committed to do it for you. Why don't we believe that? Go to the next verse, because there's the other side of it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if we're in covenant with one another, whatever you need, I've pledged to do for you. But if we're in covenant for one another, whatever I've asked you, you've pledged to do for me. Jesus said several places, if you will be my disciple, then like me, you must take up your cross and follow me. We'll talk about that down the road. Now, there's another side to this. This is a, this is a, a covenant meal we're about to undertake. But it's not just celebrating our union with him. It's celebrating our union with each other. Because Paul said, this isn't the Lord's table because there's divisions among you. This isn't the Lord's table because you are separated into, into groups, factions, cliques. So this isn't the Lord. This is not the church because of your relationship with each other. Not just your relationship with Him. Because if your relationship with Him's right, your relationship with each other will be right. So if we think we're in a great relationship with Him and we're in strife with other people, we deceive ourselves. John says, how can you say you love your God whom you can't see when you don't love your brother whom you can see? So we're about to do something. I'm going to in a moment, in just a moment, well, I'm going to change gears here because we're going to do something together, and then we're going to, to prepare to celebrate this meal. I'm talking about a covenant that God has entered into with you and me and everyone that would come to Christ to be everything we need Him to be. Oh, by the way, that mountain where Abraham was going to offer up his son Isaac, and God said, I will provide what you need there's another name for that mountain. Mount Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary. So on that same mountain that God did offer up His Son, that was the commitment He made. The question I have for you is, have you received Him? Have you received Him? The Bible says, for God so loved the world, everybody, you, me, everybody that exists, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And here's the condition, that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. We're talking about where you're going to spend eternity. The Bible teaches us that God loves you enough to have paid for your sins in His Son on that cross over 2,000 years ago. But you have to receive that gift as an act of faith. 
You have to receive him as the one who paid for your sins. You may have been in church your whole life. You may have been coming here for a while. It's not whether you believe that he's the son of God. We need to believe that. It's not that you believe he died for the sins of the world. We need to believe that.